This is Ozarks at Large for Friday, May 27th, 2022. I'm Matthew Moore, and joining me from his office in Fort Smith, as he does nearly every Friday, is Michael Tilley from Talk Business and Politics. Michael, I'm thinking we may need to rename this segment the Monastery Minute with Matthew and Michael. <laughs> How do you feel about such an alliteration? Well, it may not last long. I mean, if there's this uh, June 1st demolition date, maybe the monastery is gone in a minute at some point. <laughs> yeah, there you change, go. They don't change direction. Well, we have an update uh, from a Little Rock-based group who is talking about potentially getting involved in delaying the demolition. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, um, Preserve Arkansas, um, they received, it's kind of a, it's a, preliminary grant, $10,000 grant from the National Trust uh, for Historic Preservation. And what Preserve Arkansas wants to do with that grant is bring in an architect, have them look at the building and just assess its condition and see what the cost would be to, well, several things. One, just get it in a condition to where it could be looked at by somebody because it's in a state of disrepair now with uh, that poor roof. It's, It's water has come into the building. So, it would need a lot of work just to get it, you know, get all of that fixed. So bring someone in to do that. That could be anywhere from a 30 to a 90 day process. But the Benedictine sisters, which own the monasteries, we've said, uh, as we noted in the past, it's a historic structure, historic, large five-story structure, almost right in the middle of Fort Smith. Building's almost a hundred years old. It was built in the late Gothic revival style. It's on the National Register of Historic Places. But these sisters want to tear it down. They say they don't have money to to maintain it, upkeep it. One estimate would be that the building would need about $15 million just to get uh, into a condition where renovation and restoration could be possible. I've talked to some other developers who think that's probably too low. Hmm. But anyway, Preserve Arkansas has this grant. But as of Thursday, Preserve Arkansas had yet to hear from the sisters. Hmm. So they have to agree. They don't have to do anything but agree to let the architect come in and to delay the demolition, to give the architect time to do the, to do the report. To be honest with you, I'm not optimistic. Right. I uh, sure as hell hope I'm wrong, but I'm not optimistic that the sisters will allow this. They've essentially sent a pretty blunt message to everyone else who's asked for delay. They seem to be very focused. They seem on their decision to demolish it, you know, because they're still going to live on part of the property. Some have said, well, they just don't want anybody. They don't want to share the property with anybody else. Hmm. And, and they, But they'd also don't have the money to maintain it. So this is their way to get rid, rid of it. But it would be a, it would be a shame. You know, Dr. Stacy Hurst, she's director of the uh, Arkansas Heritage, it's, it's a large agency that handles both tourism and heritage, and she is interested and I think is working also behind the scenes to save the building. So there's a lot going on, but it just depends on the sisters if they want to accept help from other folks to save this building. And so far, they have been pretty firm. Um, I mean, it's the classic slapping folks on the wrist with their ruler kind of thing. (laughs) And there's, you know, just to just to clarify here, this $10,000 grant, you know, first of all, has to be accepted by the sisters. And two, doesn't necessarily mean that people will move forward with actually doing the needed repairs and updates to make the monastery uh, inhabitable again, right? Right. It's just, yes, that's all true. Preserve Arkansas would manage, the sisters wouldn't have to do anything. Preserve Arkansas would manage, and you're right, the report would simply say, here's what is wrong with the building, here's where repairs are needed, here's what it would cost. Just a detailed assessment on the structure and, and what it would need to to, uh, or to restore and or renovate. Uh, speaking of delays and uh, costly uh, things in Fort Smith, uh, the Fort Smith School District has seen an uh, added cost and delays with the Peak Innovation Center, um, resulting in at least $1.6 million in added cost, according to info obtained by Talk Business and Politics. Tell us a little bit about what the Peak Innovation Center is and and um, get us up to speed on that. Yeah, and I'll make this quick because there's a, there's a lot to this story. First thing I want to say is this Peak Innovation Center, it's an excellent facility, and it's going to do and is doing 
great work for students, not only high school students, not only in Fort Smith, but uh, roughly 23, I think it's 23 high schools uh, in the area where students can come to this facility from the region and get great access to workforce development skills in a wide range from high tech to maybe low tech, if you want to call it that. But I don't think I don't think automotive work anymore is low tech. Right. If you look at if you've ever looked at an engine, but right. so it's a great facility. I'm this our story in no way diminishes the what this facility uh, means to helping generate a very quality a, a good quality workforce uh, in the region. However, the facility was delayed. Construction on it was delayed, or I should say, the opening was delayed for almost a, a full school year, and there were added costs in. And when you say 1.6 million, that's just kind of what we can prove. I think there's more, but these are what our documents show. Mm-hmm. The school f- uh, officials for a long time tried to blame the delays on everyone and everybody else and everything else, supply chain, the pandemic. And some of that is true. But our documents found that a lot of it was based on their delays. For example, there was a subcontractor and then eventually the contractor, which is turnkey, said, look, you guys need a new roof on this facility. And the school board said, nope, nope. And the cost was originally $400,000. Later on, when they took another look at it, it was 700000 By the time the school district finally said, oh, yeah, well, we do need to do something with the district, that cost had ballooned up to $1.6 million. Wow. From originally 400000 was the initial. Yes. Yep. And then there was another issue where, and again, I'm just hitting the highlights of the mm-hmm. story. It's a lengthy story on our website. But Two other issues. One, the Arkansas Department of Transportation, there's a, a, a road that's going next to the Peak Center. It's going to be wide and a significant widening. And so there are rights of way negotiation. Long story short, the um, school district officials wanted more for that right of way than really what RDOT, the Arkansas Department of Transportation, was willing to give. And again, long story short, after several months of delays, and a key to this is that bringing a new water line to peak required this right-of-way negotiation to be completed because construction could not begin for that water line until both the highway department and the school district knew where the lines would be drawn, so to speak. So that delay went on and on. In fact, probably four to five months in the school district finally settled for what they should have settled for originally, which meant that even though part of the building was ready to go in December of last year, they wouldn't even have water to it in time uh, to open it, even if the even if the contractors had had it ready. And again, that wasn't publicly disco- disclosed either to the board or citizens. Uh, there was another issue with groundwater. I'm not going to get into, but it it resulted in again more delays. Um, there was about 41 days of delay because the school district wouldn't many months ago do a, a essentially perform a fix that was recommended by the contractor. So to use another product to put inside, it's a purple board product instead of regular drywall, getting that product, making the decision to move that caused 41 days of delays. And look, anyone in construction knows, will tell you that delay, you know, time is money. So that also caused money. One last issue was that there was there's this thing called metal clad cabling. It's not allowed in public schools, but for some reason, the school district originally approved it. And the school district was using a consulting firm, uh, kind of a middleman to manage the project. That consultant approved the cabling. Well, they were well into getting this installed. And one of the school officials said, no, you can't use that. They had to go back and pull the old cabling out, put the approved cabling in, that added about 10 days of extra work and around 200000 in increased cost. So, um, again, several months of delay, at least $1.6 million in added cost because the school district and its officials either don't know how to manage construction projects or were just negligent. You know, there's any number of reasons. And there are some other issues we have yet to get an answer on from the school district, even though we've uh, issued several FOI requests and we're kind of at a point we've got to figure out, do we drop it and move on or 
you know, seek legal recourse or whatever, but it's, it's just not a good look for the school district. Absolutely. Yeah. And we'll have a link to that full story on our website uh, for folks to find. Finally here, Michael, we have uh, last week you and I talked about the sales tax that was up for a vote. Tuesday was the primary election where Fort Smith voters voted for two different sales tax extensions. And both of those passed pretty easily, I would say. Yeah, I was a, I was a little surprised at the margin. You're right. The 0.25% Part of the tax that will go to fire department and parks passed by almost 67%, which in a con- politically conservative area like right. Fort Smith is impressive. The, uh, zero, the three-quarter percent part of the sales tax voted by about 57%. Of course, it's a larger part, but that's for the sewer system work, the mandated sewer system work, and significant uh, a significant new funding stream for the police department. So nice to see that passed. There was some and there was originally some opposition beginning to organize the Fort Smith Board of Directors in its wisdom kind of withdrew from an original sales tax plan, went back to some of the people who opposed it, came up with a compromise plan, and that's what was voted on. So here's an example. I know we don't see it much on the national level, but here's an example of where people can compromise and get things done and move forward. And it's, you know, as we said before, this is a continuation of a sales tax that is going to go through yes, sir. to 2030. When they when they first put the sales tax into place 10 years ago, uh, they didn't necessarily anticipate a continuation of the sales tax. Is there any glimmer of light at the end of the tunnel that 2030 we will be able to uh, get rid of this sales tax and we won't have to do another continuation? Yeah, who knows? Look, when the sales tax was reasonably put on the books, we didn't know we were going to be hit with the uh, what is now roughly about a $650 million federal order to fix the sewer system. Mm. So I think it's going to depend, the future of the sales tax is going to depend on how the city continues to, to meet that mandate, fix the sewer system. Hopefully by 2030, they've done enough work, the system's in good enough shape where they can get out from under that mandate. You can find more reporting from Michael Tilley at talkbusiness.net. Michael, thank you for joining us today. All right. Hey, you're welcome, sir. Scott Family Amazium in Bentonville offers playful exploration of the arts and sciences through new daily experiences and activities for the family. The Amazium is open every day except Tuesdays. Amazium.org to discover more. This is Ozarks at Large. We all wish for our beloved dogs and cats to live long, healthy lives. As Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich reports, veterinarian Dr. Paula Jo Broadfoot, a holistic health practitioner, scholar, and author, provides some guidance. Dr. Paula Jo Broadfoot, PJ for short, operates a very busy conventional large and small animal veterinary practice in Van Buren. She's also among the first in Arkansas to practice holistic veterinary medicine. Today, a nationally known expert on alternative and integrative veterinary technologies, Broadfoot travels widely, delivering lectures on holistic animal health. I've been in practice 40 years this year and in my own practice since 1982, which makes me a dinosaur, I think. Broadfoot clearly practices what she preaches, the long-married mother of four, grown, thriving children, and grandchildren is a picture of health. So our first question is, if humans are declared elders at age 65 and older, what about dogs and cats? That's kind of a sliding scale question because um, the smaller dogs tend to live longer. Um, the the bigger dogs, like Great Danes and uh, Wolfhounds and some of those dogs, their average lifespan may only be eight years. So if you figure the middle point of that at, you know, like a like the little tiny dogs, maybe 17, 18, they may be middle-aged at eight or nine. So I consider them aged when they start acting aged or developing the diseases of aging. Dogs especially exhibit aging based on lifestyle and breeding. You know, two of the main ones, believe it or not, are uh, overweight, that they have weight issues, and, and teeth. They literally, by the time they're three years old, many dogs have bad teeth. 
In humans, poor oral health is associated with increased risk of developing heart disease. It's recommended that humans brush and floss daily to remove plaque that can lead to gum disease. Animals are also at high risk for dental disease, Broadfoot says, due to commercial animal feed, which sticks to canine and feline teeth. We actually recommend um, raw bones for dogs and starting early. Raw bones are, are really a cheap dental because you can put, you know, once they've chewed the, taken the um, marrow out of them, my dogs will continue to chew them like seven or eight months, the same bone. When the edges start getting sharp, we throw them away. But as long as the edges aren't sharp, you can put a little bit of peanut butter in them or a little raw honey, which is antibacterial, uh, and they'll chew the same bone. Fresh raw beef bones can be purchased from the local butcher or pet food retailers, but should only be given to dogs that can safely consume them. And many dogs will submit to tooth brushing to maintain oral health. As for cats, not so much. Cats are a little more challenging because uh, dental uh, toothbrushing is an adventure. They have five sets of weapons and they can use all of them at one time. Um, so it's really better, really better to feed them a species-appropriate diet. You know, the microbiome is everywhere, but the microbiome of the mouth, if it gets shifted off balance, uh, will tend towards plaque producing. Plaque produces a biofilm that deteriorates teeth if not removed while we humans visit the dentist twice a year. But enzyme periodontal pet oral sprays, which Broadfoot has designed and sells through her clinic, can greatly help. So it's better to keep their mouth clean in the first place. Same thing with weight. The only thing that has level one evidence for longevity is weight restriction the only thing. And so the human studies were called the Crohn studies, uh, calorie-restricted optimal nutrition. The dog studies, the original one that I know of was uh, called the split litter study. And they fed uh, half of the litters of of, uh, Labradors to an ideal weight and half of them to a thin weight. The thin weight dogs live across the board two to three years longer, which is significant when you're talking about a big dog. High-quality commercial dog and cat foods organically made are widely available now compared to a decade ago. And cats in particular, cats are obligate protein eaters. Uh, To make a kibble, you have to have 40 to 50 percent carb to hold the kibble together. And they're not carb eaters. The other thing is that they are basically desert animals and they are designed to get their fluids out of the flesh they eat. They are not efficient drinkers. Canines, she says, have evolved with certain human cultures over millennia, so are biologically adapted to certain diets. Dogs were designed with people. I mean, they lived with people. They ate what people ate. And we actually do some um, kind of feeding for origin. So the little Asian dogs that come in, when they're puppies, we tell them, feed them like they're Chinese because they sat in people's laps. They ate what people ate, you know, a little bit of chicken, a little bit of pork, a little bit of fish, a lot of fruits and vegetables, a little bit of rice. um, And then we're feeding them things that they can't digest. So, and it's gacking up their teeth, you know, they're developing a biofilm and they're, you know, so we have all of this junk starting up in the mouth. Dr. Broadfoot suggests listeners search dogfoodadvisor.com to rank their purchased pet food. If they're on there, they get the recalls if there are any, and, they, and it ranks them by, by stars and tells you, you know, what's good, what's bad, so people know what they are feeding. I can tell you corn, soy, wheat, and gluten are the four big offenders for allergies, for their GMOs. They're sprayed with glyphosate. Glyphosate is a huge toxin. Broadfoot Clinic sells top-quality nutritional supplements for acute and chronic conditions. A popular product is Perna, brand-named Glycoflex, for joint health. In older dogs because of the joint issues, but it does other things. It has nine glycosaminoglycans, 53 fatty acids, a whole array of minerals. It's a great, it's a great supplement. Core vaccine regimes for puppies and kittens are critical, she says, but should be followed by alternative non-core vaccination schedules. You vaccinate for their risk factors. So, uh, and not every year. They don't need it. They don't need those every year. You want to do as as few as you need to do. Um, And then you need to feed good food, clean water, uh, reduce the toxicity as much as you can. and, and keep them thin. Well, number one, the thing that has level, level one evidence for longevity is weight restriction. 
Dr. P.J. Broadfoot has authored numerous journal articles and is co-author of a textbook titled Integrating Complementary Medicine into Veterinary Practice, published in 2008 by Wiley Blackwell. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. Last week, Ivory Bill Brewing and Siloam Springs released their latest beer. And as Ozarks at Large's Dana Carruth reports, the Restoration Ale has a distinctive and unusual ingredient. So you've probably heard of oats, barley, rye, and wheat. But what about Kernza? It's not every day that a new grain gets introduced. In fact, it's been probably closer to a thousand years since that happened. But the rollout of Kernza by the Land Institute is the latest effort to help spurn sustainable agriculture here in the U.S. And what better way to celebrate that than by raising a glass? Last week, Ivory Bill Brewing Company in Salem Springs announced the release of their latest Kernza-based beer. Casey Letelier co-owns the brewery with his wife, Dorothy, and says when he first heard about the new grain, he was eager to use it in a beer. I have been following the work of the Land Institute for at least a decade, getting the newsletter and kind of hearing as it sort of approached uh, the point where it was uh, like actually usable. So uh, I had heard a couple of years ago now that it was that it was really close, and uh, I had reached out and said, "Okay, where can I where can I get it?" The grain was developed in 2008 by the Salina, Kansas-based Land Institute, a nonprofit research group focused on sustainable agriculture. Peter Miller works with Sustain-A-Grain, one of the suppliers of Kernza, which helps recruit farmers to refine growing and cultivation techniques for the new grain, and then connects them with people like Letelier who want to buy and use Kernza in their products. Sustain-A-Grain, we are a group of farmers who are um, trying to develop the market for Kernza and, and telling people about how Kernza has all kinds of environmental and sustainability benefits. And last Saturday, Miller helped launch the new Restoration Kernza Ale as the featured speaker for Ivory Bill Brewing's final science hour of the spring season. We will invite a guest in who's an expert in a field to talk about something science-related and always conservation-related, too. So we've had uh, the leading uh, expert on prairie grass restoration uh, in Arkansas, one of the leading ornithologists, this amazing entomologist who is working on preserving habitat for the American burying beetle, someone who's working on preservation of the Illinois River. So lots of different subjects, but all united within the banner of uh, conservation in our region. Letelier says this talk is special, though, because the conversation all ties back to the beer. He says Ivory Bill is the first brewery in Arkansas to use Kernza. Tonight's Restoration Ale is actually the second beer they've produced using the grain. And Miller says other brewers are taking note. Patagonia Provisions and Delaware-based Dogfish Head Brewery launched their own Kernza Pills earlier this spring. Actually, Whole Foods labeled Kernza uh, one of their top 10 food trends for 2022. we have seen national rollouts of, of Kernza products by Patagonia Provisions, by General Mills. There are a lot of people who are very interested in this and a lot of very um, positive response from consumers as well. So by now, you may be wondering, what exactly is Kernza and what makes it sustainable? Kernza is, is part of a movement to make agriculture perennial, uh, to to work more with nature than against nature. Um, Most of the plants that we find in nature are perennials. They they bloom every year. And if we can do that, then we'll actually um, reduce agriculture's negative impacts on the environment, um, and we will bring the cost of production down for farmers. The Kernza grain, Miller explains, is harvested from intermediate wheatgrass, a sort of cousin to annual wheat that's grown throughout the U.S., but originates from Eurasia and was brought to America by USDA researchers in the 1930s. He says it took the Land Institute nearly four decades to develop the crop before it could be put into production. 
As of last year, there are about 3,500 acres of Kernza in production. Traditional agriculture uses annual grains where we plant them, we harvest them, we till them, and then we plant again, and you know, it's just a one-year cycle with that grain. A perennial is planted once, you can harvest it, and then next year comes along and you can harvest again. And you haven't had to plant and you haven't had to till during that season. Standing in the brew room, Miller points to a long poster hanging from a lofty pillar to his left. It shows a life-size image of the root system for regular annual wheatgrass compared to Kernza. Kernza is a perennial, so that means you don't have periods of the year where tilled soil is being washed into rivers. You also have this really deep root structure that continues to grow from year to year. So Kernza's roots are often 15 feet deep, where your annual wheat is only maybe three feet deep. Uh, That means that you're pulling nutrients from much deeper uh, below ground, and it's also much more drought tolerant, um, and you're also sequestering carbon in the soil. So the benefits of Kernza seem obvious from an environmental standpoint, but when it comes to making it a viable product for brewing beer, Letelier says that took a little bit of experimentation. It's different than brewing with the kind of grains that we usually use, the you know, barley and rye and wheat. Uh, it's, a, it's a much smaller seed head, so it's a little bit of a challenging grinding process to make it um, usable in the mash, but it's really fun. We've been looking forward to using Kernza for a very long time. And Letelier says once he nailed down how to brew with Kernza, developing the flavor was the next step. We wanted to brew a beer that would really show Kernza off. So it's a really simple beer. It's on the strong side, but um, delicately hopped, uh, 8.8% ABV, so it is definitely like a big sipping beer, but also it's really light and crisp. The Kernza gives it these really lovely apricot and spice notes, and it's really fun. After Miller's Science Hour presentation, customers flooded to the tap room to taste the ale. Andrew Whitney, who drove in from Tulsa with his family, says he was surprised by the taste. But this is fantastic, man. I would never have guessed it's eight, eight and a half or 8.8. Um, it drinks more like a five and a half, like a session beer. So it's, it's real crisp and clean for being an unknown grain to me, you know. I'd never heard of Kernza before seeing the Ivory Bill post about it, so. And Siloam Springs native Bethany Smith says she appreciated learning about the agriculture involved in taking the beer from crop to tap. There were a lot of things that I learned, like my grandparents were farmers, and so I grew up on their farm, but they were tomato farmers, <laughs> so very different kind of farming. And so I'm familiar with the language a little bit, but it's so outside of my normal, so I feel like I just learned a lot. Um, and I think it's just important to educate ourselves about what we are consuming and what we can consume. And Letelier says, ultimately, that's the goal, to not only make good beer, but to help those who drink it understand how what they consume affects their environment. Eating is an agricultural act, and the same can be said for drinking. Drinking is also an agricultural act, so that everything that we choose to put into a beer is essentially uh, claiming acres of land. And so, you know, the acres of land we are, like, using Kernza, that's land that's not blowing away. Um, and land that, uh, like Peter was saying, it's, it's actually sequestering carbon, not losing it. And so it's, it's all these tiny little votes, and um, they can kind of add up to real change. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Daniel Carruth. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Timothy Dennis. The local band Modeling is preparing for an album release show taking place this evening at George's Majestic Lounge in Fayetteville. The band is comprised of brothers Quinn, Ryan, and Connor Brogren. The three stopped by the Farm and Garner Performance Studio earlier this week to talk about the show and to talk about the new album titled Somewhere Before. It started out in the beginning of 2020, like right when the pandemic hit, 
uh, we were recording our first single, Lodestone, and it was originally going to be an EP because we had all these plans to start playing shows and being more active as a live band on top of recording an EP. Then the uh, pandemic hit, and, uh, you know, that plan kind of went out the window. We had all this extra time, so we were just like, well, let's just make it an album instead because we've yet to release an album under this name. We've done a couple of, like, EPs, digital EPs, I guess you could say, on Spotify. But, um, yeah, we've never done an album, so we decided to do that around the beginning of 2020. The first track was Lodestone. We released that as a single in April of 2020. After that, we decided to start working on another one called Low Fantasy. It was just kind of like, what was the most inspiring song next? It wasn't a real, like, strategic plan or process. There was like an initial aesthetic that we were going for. I used to be a photographer, so I, I like looking at images of things and I take a lot of photographs, or, or I did. But yeah, I had this blog that I had put together of a lot of, I'm not sure exactly the style of the photography, but it's a lot of urban night photography made to look like film and it kind of has like a cyberpunk vibe but it's very realistic looking too it's like lots of shots in like japan and tokyo with neon lights and stuff Mm -hmm. it just had a cool atmosphere to it and so i made this blog with all these photographs and i was thinking like i wanted our ep at the time to sort of sound like what these photographs looked like to me which that sort of inspired a lot of like the synthesizer. I mean, we were always obsessed with synthesizers, but that sort of gave us a direction for mm-hmm. the album. this album it's also the opening track Uh, is there any significance to that name is there any significance to it in the context of the album going back to the photographs i kind of have this like i really like the idea of retro futurism like i I like that concept and it's just something that i was kind of just not really obsessing over but just very interested in and uh, this idea of the future from like people from the 80s or like in the past like what they thought the future was gonna look like and what those images were I mean I really liked that concept it was kind of cool to me so yeah somewhere before sort of represents like a fictional time like a fictional past but it's also like a factual thing as well because a lot of the lyrics and stuff are I mean, they're all based on like past events and real things that have happened in in my life, past experiences and things like that. So the other thing is that like a lot of these songs we were kind of like putting together from like things we had started years before and never finished. So I feel like somewhere before is like it kind of covers all that ground. It's sort of fictional sort of. So there are sections on this album that are more like soundscapes than a traditional song structure. They're like, they're more of a scene than driven by a particular melody or rhythm, kind of like drifting. How do you approach writing a song like that? That song Um, is actually interesting because it was supposed to be a part of track number six, which is called Until It Ends. That was actually going to be the end section of that track because... We wrote that song originally in 2017, and it was this much grander piece of music. It was like eight minutes long. It was two sections. So Drifting was born out of that. But, you know, we originally wrote it for strings, and we listened back to it, and it just didn't do anything for us anymore. Something about it didn't feel 
I can't really recall. Well, I'll say that, like, we don't have the funds to hire real string players. I mean, <laughs> yeah. um, and that's part of the problem is, like, we do use Spitfire audio sample libraries, and they're really great sample libraries, but there's just a fakeness to it that, like, yeah, it's just trying to, like, articulate all the nuances of, like, real players. It's once you just listen back, it just feels so, like, you're just listening to nothing but samples, and sometimes that kind of, like, takes you out of the feeling. And so for drifting, yeah, we um, I, I went through so many revisions of so that ending, many. and we felt like it didn't it didn't need to be part of until it ends. It felt like something completely different after I revamped it and made it on synth. So we're like, this should be its own thing. It doesn't need to be like a two part, whatever. saying with like the scenery and like the filmic aspect thing like yeah a lot of our music when we are writing it we are just watching like scenes from movies or like muted clips of scenes of movies on youtube and for that one in particular i was watching the runway scene from neon demon which is like a what's his name Nicholas winning reference. Yeah. Reppin, I think. He yeah. did Drive. He directed Drive. And, and uh, Only God Forgives. Only God Forgives. Yeah, I was watching that runway scene uh, with uh, Elle Fanning, and she's like a fashion model. And like, it's very, like, I don't know. That's That helped me uh, write the pacing of that track. We actually called that song Elle Fanning for a long time because we couldn't <laughs> think of a name for it for a while. <laughs> so, a couple months ago, you guys actually performed a few songs from this album actually here in our lobby at KUAF in a completely different form. What was it like to kind of strip those songs down after you had built them up? I think it was, <laughs> it was stressful, I think, only because we, we didn't give ourselves enough time yeah. to do it because we were trying to prioritize the record. And so, like, this thing... We were so happy to be part of this, and it was a really cool experience and a lot of fun. But, uh, yeah, we, we tend to do that. We tend to, like, it's very hard for us to do multiple things. So, like, we'll, like, put it off for so long and be like, oh, crap, we have this thing coming up. We need to, like, there's no way we can play our songs like this. Let's, let's rearrange them. Um, that's the only reason why it was stressful. But other than that, it was a really awesome learning experience yeah. for us. Because I feel like when we strip down a lot of the things that are in the songs, like, my fear was that it wouldn't sound like a song anymore, but that wasn't the case. It was kind of nice to hear the space within the track and be like, okay, like, and I think it influenced us moving forward after this to approach songwriting a little bit differently. So we're actually kind of grateful. Yeah, that so we, thank you for having us. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> I mean, uh, just, just simple arranging of these tracks, like just kind of changed how we looked at our songwriting. I think, we tend to overthink things a lot. And when we had to take things back, we didn't have enough time to overthink it. Yeah, and, um, it was quick. Yeah. Based off instinct. Yeah, it was more instinctive. And, like, we actually got a good reaction from the people who came. Like, yeah, it was, it was a cool learning experience. album is out now. Uh, you've already had one release show in Central Arkansas, but you have a release show planned for this weekend in Fayetteville, right? Mm -hmm. uh, tell us a little bit about it. We're playing at George's this Friday, May 27th with our friends in Olympics, and we're also playing with this band called The Flims. It should be 
a really interesting like mix of music. You know, none of us really sound alike. So, yeah, it's going to be a late show. It'll be it'll. I think it starts around like nine thirty or something like that. Probably ends around twelve forty five. But yeah, I'm really excited to finally in my head in this uh, cycle for this album <laughs> in my again like it just came out but like this kind of closes it for me we still have so much to do with like making a couple of homemade videos and whatnot for some tracks but this kind of it just feels good to move on you know after working mm-hmm. on it for so long after this cycle is closed as you say what, what what's on the horizon what have y'all got coming up well, we plan to put out another EP before the end of the year, probably like a three-track EP, something kind of simple. For me, well, I think all of us, once you finish something that's been like looming over you and it's so heavy, like I feel like really creative after finishing something yeah. or just inspired because that's done with and I feel like I have room to think about other things. So that's what we want to do. That's basically We do it. have like, I don't know if you would call it like a tour, but like we do have a lot of shows in which we're going to be playing to promote the album but yeah as ryan said after that we do really want to try to get into um putting out an ep because we do have a lot of new ideas musically that we want to experiment with yeah so that's the plan gotcha how's the best way for people to keep up with you keep up with your music keep up with what you've got going on i would say maybe maybe instagram would be the best I'm just going to give our website because in a couple years if this is still live out there and it might not even matter. So yeah. I'm just going to say you can check us out at modelingmusic.co and you'll find all of our links to Instagram and all that other stuff. But our Instagram is at modelingmusic if you do want to follow us now. Yeah, that's yeah. where we post most of our stuff. And we're on YouTube and TikTok and Facebook and all this stuff, but I feel like, yeah, Instagram's probably where we uh, do the most stuff. I got you. Yeah. Well, I think that's all the questions I have for you, unless there's anything I neglected to ask, anything I forgot, anything you'd like to add in there, any of you. I want to say a um, huge thank you to you, Timothy, for having us on at KUAF. And um, thank you to Mid-America Arts Alliance, did I say mm-hmm. that correctly? Yep. And Artist360, those two organizations granted us a grant, <laughs> or Connor was a, a recipient for a grant that and they helped, helped us fund. Yeah, they like, helped us fund this whole album and create the physical CD and tape and vinyl. So that was really huge. Without without their help, we probably would just have a digital album release or something. I'm not yeah. sure. But um, yeah. just wanted to thank them personally. And thank you to George's for having us at their venue. Thank you to all of all the people that have listened to our music and have shared it thus far. It's been out for a week. And the reaction has been pretty awesome. And I just want to thank those people that did all that and, and bought our music because nobody buys music anymore. So, right. Well, guys, uh, thank you so much for stopping by. Uh, come back again sometime soon, all right? Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. All right. That was Ryan, Connor, and Quinn Brogan of the band Modeling speaking to me earlier this week inside the Fermi Garner Performance Studio at the Carver Center for Public Radio. The fateful release show for Somewhere Before takes place tonight at George's Majestic Lounge. The cover is $12, doors are at 8.30, with music starting at around 9.15. The band's Olympics and the Flims are also on the bill. You can find out more about modeling at modelingmusic.co or on Instagram at modelingmusic. This is Ozarks at Large. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. KUAF is supported by Packrat Outdoor Center, a small business family-owned in Fayetteville since 1973. Packrat is dedicated to community, conservation, and waste reduction. A schedule of local cleanups, full moon hikes, and pint night events is available online at packratoc.com. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. Pastor Clint Schneckloth of Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Fayetteville is an avid reader. Today, before Monday's unofficial start of summer, he rounds out his list of suggested spring reads with Ozarks at Large's Kyle Kellums with an epic historical novel by Olga Tokarczyk. The Books of Jacob or A Fantastic Journey Across Seven Borders, Five Languages, and Three Major Religions, Not Counting the Minor Sects. Told by the Dead, supplemented by the author, drawing from a range of books and aided by imagination, the witch being the greatest natural gift of any person that the wise might have it for a record, that my compatriots reflect, laypersons gain some understanding, and melancholy souls obtain some slight 
enjoyment. It better be a thousand pages, right? <laughs> that that's a big promise. It sounds incredibly interesting. Well, and you know, that's the kind of subtitle that you would have on, like, say, seventeenth and eighteenth century novels that were also really long, right? Right. Um, which appropriately, uh, so the books of Jacob is about, or or it takes place in that period. So, the Olga Tokarczuk is the she's a Nobel Prize winner. She's from Poland, so this is translated from Polish. Uh, I brought these books that we've been talking about to kind of think about this region, and of course, the main place that Ukrainians have been fleeing Poland during the war has been Poland. To a lesser degree, Slovakia, which is where I used to live in eastern Slovakia. Um, And so that's on my mind a lot. And the thing to know about uh, that whole region, so really kind of roughly Poland, Slovakia, Ukraine, is it has been run over back and forth by the tug and pull of, you know, political forces for a very long time. And in the meantime, in the actual areas where that just running them over, I mean, the, the, like a quarter of the Polish people died during the Second World War or something, in, you know, just insane like that. There's been the maintenance of this prof- really beautiful and strange culture or cultures and whole like language groups that you don't even know about until you kind of live there for a while. Um, An example, and I know this is digressing from this book, but like an example would be when we lived in Eastern Slovakia, the Rusin people uh, live in Northeastern Slovakia, Southeastern Poland and Western Ukraine. They don't even have their own country, but it's their own. They have a language which is kind of like Slovak, but with the Cyrillic alphabet. And so, like, if you go into those parts of any of those three countries, you'll see signs up in Rusine. But they've been divided three ways by the way, you know, the West laid down the uh, national borders after the Second World War. Well, the Books of Jacob is about the diversity of cultures that were in this region and honestly, kind of how influential and um, I don't know what another word is for this, but essentially like, I mean, there was a lot of wealth in these communities. Uh, They've had a lot of impact, but in odd ways so that they don't get the attention of like the West in quite the same way that other things do, right? And so what happened was there was this mystical guy, very strange uh, man who um, gathered tons of followers in this region Mm -hmm. in like the 17th century. And what he did was he subverted um, the Judaism of the time. So there was, that's one thing that might be a surprise for many people is that there was a strong Jewish presence, extensive Jewish culture in Poland and Ukraine and in this region. Of course, you know, we should know that, but it was the, the, the whole goal of, you know, Hitler was to erase that. Eradicate it. Eradicate right? it, right? Yeah. And to a degree that was successful because now there's no poll, you know, there's no, there's hardly any Jews in Poland or Slovakia um, or like you have today, um, kind of this the denial of the presence of Jewish people in Ukraine, even though the president is right. Jewish, right? So there's this counter narratives running against each other. Well, what's odd about the main character, uh, the the well, I wouldn't call him the main character, but the um, this like charismatic religious leader Jacob Frank is um, he both first starts out centering a kind of Jewish mysticism, like as if he's that he's the Messiah. But then the, what the Messiah does is the Messiah subverts the traditional religion. So everything is turned, supposed to be turned upside down. 
he did all these subversive things. And yet for some reason he gathered this like really major following. And then he got most of his followers to convert to Christianity. Okay. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) right. So that's the, what Olga's talking about in terms of the crossroads of these religions. Um, and, but, but the way she comes at it is, um, she really wants the reader to come into that world, but not just like as in kind of this classic first person narration kind of thing that's so popular in novels. So she wants to give it kind of this more, um, hmm, like existential status. Uh, and so she comes at it in a much more, um, distanced way. The voice is a a very intentional choice in this novel. The, the, what she calls like, I think she calls it like fourth person narration. She famously, before this was published, she, when she received the Nobel prize, she gave this really uh, important like lecture at the Nobel prize about the problems of narration in novel writing. And so this is like obviously her experiment in trying to push the boundaries of how you write a novel and voice and all that kind of thing. Um, but then what, what also you get is you get all of these little um, very detailed forays into the culture of the place, uh, a strong sense of how people dressed and lived. Um, I, one, that's one of the things I'm loving the most about the novel. So the people in this period although they were, say, Jewish or Christian or whatever their main religions were, they also practiced a lot of the things that you imagine from the more of the Middle Ages or the medieval, you know. So um, they cast a lot of spells. They have a lot of rituals to try to do things. And one of the events that happens is at a wedding, there's this, there's this older woman who um, is dying. And if she were to die then that would take precedence over a wedding that's supposed to happen that's very important in the community. So the rabbi comes in and and does this ritual to keep her alive uh, long enough for the wedding to take place. But then he loses the thing that did the spell to keep her alive. And so since they can't find it, she can't die. So that's the kind of the magical realism kind of thing, which you see in a lot of... Is it an immersive novel because this is one that has a high risk of perhaps losing the reader but it sounds like it's that's uh, I've read a couple a number of reviews of this book everybody emphasizes how big it is you know what I mean like mm-hmm. it's actual size right. and length and um, it definitely falls into the category of you get what you put into it if you want one thing that you could read that would make you think completely differently about the present moment in Eastern Europe at this intersection between the West and the East by going backwards into the past. This book does that like in spades. That was Pastor Clint Schneckloth of Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Fayetteville speaking with Ozarks at Large's Kyle Kellums inside the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio. Pastor Clint's suggested read today was The Books of Jacob by Olga Tokarczyk. This is 91.3 FM KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Rogers, and Jasper. 91.3 KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Ozarks at Large is a production of KUAF. Contributors to this Friday edition includes Daniel Carruth, Jacqueline Froelich, and Kyle Kellums. Thanks to Michael Tilley from Talk Business and Politics for checking in with us today. I'm Matthew Moore. And I'm Timothy Dennis. Don't forget, we will have a special holiday weekend version of Ozarks at Large coming up Sunday morning at 9 and on the Monday daily edition of Ozarks at Large. We'll revisit some past performances from the Mary Baker Rumsey Steinway Piano inside the Furman Garner Performance Studio. Until then, please enjoy your weekend. Don't forget to apply sunscreen. Be well, and we will talk again soon.